We're going to uh, the book of Acts chapter 1 again in a moment. We are continuing the series we began last week that we've titled A True Witness. We're teaching about the power of the Holy Ghost and how it produces a true witness in our lives. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. <clears throat> this power that Acts 1 and 8 tells us that we receive and the witness that it produces includes initially the change in us because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, but it also includes the supernatural demonstration of the Holy Ghost as God confirms His Word with signs following. Last week we began to consider and will continue to consider today how each of us are given gifts from God. I mean, there are gifts that you are given from the Lord that have a purpose. Some of those gifts we, would, we will discover are a part of our personalities, our more natural talents, or how God's created each of us as unique individuals. Other gifts are imparted by the Spirit of God, and some are specific callings that are placed upon the lives of, of particular individuals. The underlying principle of all the gifts that God gives to humanity is that they are placed within the body of Christ that we might be contributors in some way. We're not designed to be storage vessels. We are designed to contribute to the kingdom of God and to the body of Christ. And Paul wrote, we're not going to read this this morning, but Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he impressed upon them the need for the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And he told them that if we have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if that spirit is living in us, the King James uses the word dwelleth, I believe, then that spirit would quicken or it would make alive our mortal or our natural bodies. Now, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that when Jesus returns, when the trump of God sounds in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, that we shall be changed, that these mortal bodies will put on immortality or they will be transformed to be eternal bodies. But that does not mean that that quickening, that making alive is reserved only for that day because I believe very strongly that the Spirit of God quickens us now as well. There is a life that God wants us to live now while we are still in these mortal bodies, while we're still getting older, getting sick from time to time and having bad backs and bad knees and bad everything else. There is still a spiritual life that God wants us to have now that is this witness that is spoken to us about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that we would be, that power would be a witness in us and through us. And so as individuals, as God quickens us or he makes us alive spiritually individually in this life he designs that we would also contribute to the quickening of his body to the making alive of the body of christ that we would be contributing something to its life to its function to its performance of what he wants to do in the world today his body being the church amen we're going to go to romans chapter 12 and spend most of this morning there romans chapter 12 we're going to start with the first two verses Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy 
and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That word reasonable is interesting. We read that and we automatically assume that it means that it's an acceptable uh, giving, an acceptable amount, which I think is true, but it also speaks about consciousness. It speaks about logic and process, that we are making a decision to present ourselves to the Lord. Verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Some commentators suggest that in the epistle or the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, that at this point, at the beginning of chapter 12, there is a shift in the subject matter, or there is a shift in the focus of what the Lord is using Paul to communicate. Paul's opening statement in, in verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, I, I urge you therefore, which certainly seems to suggest that what he is about to say is connected to what he's just been saying, that he said all of what he said before, and he's saying now, because of this, I urge you to do this. And the subject shift, if you want to look at it later in your own time within the epistle to Rome, seems to be from a strong doctrinal focus in the first 11 chapters, teaching and establishing the truths of God's word into a Christian living focus, or what to do with the truths that have just been taught or that we have just learned. Doctrine's an interesting word. Uh, some people get funny when you use the word doctrine. It, it's often viewed negatively in some circles. When you mention doctrine, people think that it's unpleasant, that it's somehow like taking medicine or eating something that you don't like simply because it's good for you. Many of us remember that when we were kids, the things we were told to eat that we did not particularly want, but they were good for us. And one of the main reasons that people can react this way to doctrine is that doctrine has a tendency to divide. It, when we teach doctrine, it causes people to separate over different views that they may hold on a particular subject. And if you study church history, in the broader sense of all flavors of, of church history, you will see that doctrinal divisions even cost people their lives. And let me say very clearly, I don't believe God has ever endorsed us having people executed because they held a different doctrinal position to us. But the reality is that doctrine simply means teaching. That's what it means. And good teaching establishes truth and exposes error. And one of, one of the, and this might seem a little bit bizarre to say, but one of the really inconvenient problems with truth is that it is simply true. If it's true, it can't be anything else except true. And by definition, truth cannot be wrong. And truth, by definition, separates. If something is established as being accurate or correct or right, then anything that is not that is therefore wrong. When we go to school, we are taught how to do things the correct way or the true way. And when we don't get that right, we are marked as having got that wrong or untrue or incorrect. Truth is not flexible. It's not malleable. It's, we live in a world today where society does not believe in absolute truth but rather they believe in your truth. Well, that's your truth. That, that goes against the very definition of the word truth. It's okay to say that's your opinion, that's your perspective, that's your point of view, but if it's true, it's true. Real truth, when we talk about it, particularly in relation to God, is not dictated to by circumstance or situation. It's simply true. And the Bible says that God be true and every man a liar. 
So what God says, regardless of whether it's approved or disapproved in the court of public opinion, is true. God, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. So when it comes to God, we cannot have our own truths. You know, you hear, you, you, there are a lot of cliches, but people say things like, well, I believe God this, and I believe God that, and God knows my heart, and He knows this, and He knows that, and all those things are true, but those statements are completely worthless unless they line up with the Scripture. Because if I have an opinion about God that doesn't line up with His opinion, my opinion's of no value. In fact, without being unkind, our opinions about God are only of any value if they agree with His. They're not going to carry much weight if they don't agree with the Word of God. Now, let me say this. There are certainly areas in our walk with God where there is room for personal opinions, where there are different viewpoints, and sometimes we call that Christian liberty. We might say there are things we're not willing to die in a ditch over. They're not necessarily heaven or hell issues. But when something is clearly true from the Word of God, the argument's finished. But the foundation that we build upon We spoke about that recently. The foundation that we build upon, that we depend upon for salvation, must be true, must be accurate. Amen. Brother David Bernard put it like this. He said, the purpose for doctrine is to produce consecrated lives. Teaching has never, in a biblical sense, never been simply designed for knowledge. It's never been simply designed so that we can go away feeling smarter than we did when we came in. It's always been given and directed by God that it might produce a consecration or a commitment to God and to His ways. That's what doctrine's for. If you approach learning the Word of God simply for knowledge, that will produce pride. If you approach it from the desire of wanting to please Him and worship Him, that will produce obedience. And humility and submission, they're two very different outcomes. Amen. They have a lot to do with how we approach things. Amen. Amen. So going back to Romans chapter 12, those first two verses, after establishing the doctrine that Paul wrote about in the previous chapters of the epistle, the first two verses let us know that this is the required response. Firstly, that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. What that means is we offer who we are, with our whole lives to the Lord as worship. Our whole lives to God as worship. Secondly, we are not to be pressed into a mold or an image that conforms to society. The Lord has never said, do your best to fit in with the world. In fact, he said that the friendship of the world is enmity or hatred, strong opposition to God. You cannot be a friend with the world and be friends with God. Again, we talked about friendship a few weeks back. When we talk about being a friend of the world and friend with God, we're not talking about a Facebook friend. We're talking about a relationship. We're talking about something where we are influenced by, where we make decisions to please someone or something. Amen. So we cannot be conformed to society, but we are to be transformed. Or our form, who we are, is to actually be changed by having our minds renewed, or we might better understand that word as renovated, which then flows into our actions. God changes here. That's supposed to flow into here and here. That's the way it's supposed to work. And if you've walked the Lord for any period of time, you know that's an ongoing process. Amen. And this year, we'll get into some of this next week, but this year we are going to be endeavoring to increase our focus on the Word of God. Because, not that we have downplayed it in the past, don't let me say that, 
But the Word of God works together with the Spirit of God to renovate how we think. And if we're going to be victorious as Christians, it's got to come about through the renovating of our minds with the Holy Ghost. Amen. I was chatting with somebody just the other day and they were sharing with me how that there was some scripture they'd been reading as part of their devotion that was a perfect response to something they were going through. And because they'd been in the Word of God, when they were then thinking about considering that situation, they had something biblical to respond to that situation with. So instead of responding with the way they thought naturally, they were choosing to respond with the way God wanted them to think supernaturally. You cannot do that consistently without having the Word of God front and center in your life. Now, I believe from time to time God can bring His Word to you that you may not have looked at recently, you may not have studied, and He will do that supernaturally. But the day-in, day-out pattern that God has designed is that we would saturate our minds and hearts in the Word of God so that whatever we face, that would be where our response comes from. When I face a trial, when I face a challenge, when I face an offense, when I face whatever it may be, what I reach back for, I've got to have. When David stood before the giant, when he reached into that shepherd's pouch, he'd already been to the brook and got the stones. If he had to reach in there and there was nothing but air, he was in trouble. But he'd stopped and carefully selected the right tools for his weapon. When you spend time in the Word of God, you're carefully selecting the right tools for your weapon in the battle for your soul. But when the giant stands before you and there's nothing in the shepherd's back, you won't be out there. You'll be with the rest of the army shaking and quivering, hiding back in the bushes. Amen. So moving on in Romans chapter 12, reading verses 3 through 5, Paul says, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now we'll leave those verses up on the wall, please. We often use verse 3 to support the idea that every person has the capacity to believe in God because God has given them a measure or a portion of faith. We'll often say that every person that's ever been created has the capacity to believe in God because God has has given them a portion of faith. Now, I believe as a principle that's an accurate concept. But the context, and if you know much about studying Scripture, the context, what is being said around that verse, the context of these verses is about being transformed and being able to prove or to find out what is the will of God in your life. And that will of God for you is directly connected to the subject of verses 4 and 5, which is still on the wall, which is that we are members or parts of a body and that we don't all have the same office or function. If you remember what we referred to from Romans before, the quickening. Every one of us is designed to bring a quickening to the body of Christ. Life that God puts in us, that we contribute to His body. We don't all have the same office. We are all different, but we are very much members one of another. Just the the obvious and repeated example of Scripture is your natural body. Your, Your body is not a Dyson vacuum cleaner. You don't take off different attachments when you need them. They're always together. 
Your body doesn't, it's always together. The parts are continuously one part of the body. And in a very sober reality, we have to understand that the moment we cut ourselves off from the body, death begins. When something is cut off your body, there is a very small window surgically where you can get that reattached and it will continue to live. We need to think about that spiritually when we think about walking away from the household of faith. Amen. So with that context in mind, that we are all part of one body, Paul makes what I think are some really, really important statements in verse 3. He begins by saying that he is speaking through or by the grace that has been given to him. Paul's calling as an apostle and the capacity that he has to write to them in the authority of that office and to instruct them is by the grace of God. And he underlines that when he says, so we should remember not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to be sober or to honestly recognize that it is not of us. One of the things I've taught before, that one, one of the reasons, and maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons I believe the, the Apostle Paul had such an effective ministry was he was able to separate the anointing and the calling and power of the office that God called him to from his own natural abilities. He was very quick to say, I am the chief of all sinners. Very quick to say that God used him as an example of what he could do with something that was really broken. But then he would turn around and operate without doubt in the giftings and office that God called him to be in. Understanding that balance is a huge key to being effective in the kingdom of God. Firstly, keeping ourselves humble, but the other time also understanding and having the faith to operate in the way that God would have us to. Amen. And that's, that's the key statement from the end of verse 3, is that whatever God has called you to do, somebody say, that's me. Whatever God has called you to do, or however he desires to place you in the body, he has given you the measure of faith necessary to get that job done. Paul said, by the grace of God, I'm an apostle. He's using me to speak to you, so let's keep ourselves humble. And whatever he's called you to, he's given you the portion that you need to get it done. That's a powerful principle that's there in verse 3. And there's two particular things that come out from understanding that verse. The first one is, whatever we do in the kingdom of God, however we serve, the glory belongs to Jesus. Genuine humility is powerful in the purpose of God. And secondly, whatever he has called you to do or to be, he has provided already both the grace and the measure of faith necessary to get it done. So what that means for you and me is we have no excuse. If he has gifted you or called you, whatever it is that is your purpose, we want to work out to prove what his perfect will is. When you know what God's will is for you, he has given you both the grace and the measure of faith to fulfill his will. But what do we do? soon as the Lord spoke to Moses, Moses pulled out his list of ready-made excuses about why he could not do the job. It was almost like he had them written in a note in his pocket. The Lord said, I'm going to send you back. You're going to be the deliverer and so on and so forth. And Moses said, well, Lord, that's a great plan, but here's the 27 reasons why that's just not going to work. But God had already provided both the grace and the measure of faith necessary for Moses to be the deliverer. And when Moses... It took him some time like it takes you and I some time. But when he came to the place that he recognized that God had positioned him for that job, 
he filled the office that God wanted him to fill. In, not in his own strength, but in the Lord's. We have no excuses. Amen. Now we're going to read the next three verses, verses 6 through 8 of Romans 12. And we're going to see the first list of gifts that we're going to consider in this series. It's always worth keeping in mind that some of the gifts in the lists that we look at, it's hard to say gifts and lists at the same time. Some of the gifts and the lists that we're going to look at, they can overlap. They're not necessarily nice little neat boxes. And while we want to be able to define them to a point for the sake of understanding, we've got to be careful we don't say, well, this is exactly how God does everything. God can kind of do things whatever way he wants. That's one of the perks of being God. This list is sometimes called the service or the motivational gifts. So let's read Romans 12, verses 6 through to 8. Having then gifts differing, in other words, you're not the same. None of us are made with a cookie cutter. Differing according to the grace, there's the grace again, that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now that's the King James. I'm going to read that to you, and it's in my slides from the New Living Translation, just to use some slightly more modern terms that might help us a little bit. Verse 6 says, In his grace God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, Speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. If you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So there's some different terms for the gifts in that second passage in a modern translation but the first gift in this list is prophecy now when you hear that word most of us automatically have a perception in our minds of what that means some of us think of a you know an old man with a long beard and a coat you know that comes out of the desert haze into town and anoints kings and prophesies and that's that's more the office of the prophet which we'll get to in another lesson but in a loose general sense, loose is maybe the wrong word, but in a general sense, the word prophecy or prophesy means to speak something from divine inspiration and to declare the purposes of God. That may include things such as, but not limited to, reproving and admonishing the wicked, comforting the afflicted, or potentially revealing things that may be hidden. It does not necessarily involve a prediction of the future, which is sometimes a default thought with prophecy. It can refer to a supernatural public message in the language of the audience, which we heard in the service this morning, although that seems to be more in line with the gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians, which we'll get to in another lesson. But here it seems to have the more general meaning of anointed testimony, proclamation, sharing the gospel. So that's that's prophecy. Ministry means serving others, and that's what most modern translations would translate that as, particularly service in the church. Some people are especially gifted with both an attitude and ability of service in certain capacities. The Greek word I'm not going to try to pronounce properly is diakonia, something like that, which is a broad word that covers a variety of service, work, or assistance. So it's serving. Then there is the gift of teaching or instruction, 
There's a lot of applications we can look at from that. Could be Bible, home Bible study teachers. Could be Sunday school teachers. Could be people that just have a, a gift for sharing the Word of God. That's modern examples of people who operate this gift. Exhortation means giving encouragement or comfort. Some people might exercise this gift in public testimony, while others do so primarily by personal contact, various forms including friendship, fellowship, might be telephone calls, if old school, might be letters and cards, more modern, might be emails and text messages. There, there is a lady in one of our churches in Melbourne, I think I've shared this before, who's taken it upon herself to send birthday cards and Christmas cards and anniversary cards to ministry throughout Australia. And for as long as I've been pastoring, she has sent a Christmas card to our family, birthday cards for me, my wife, and both of our children, a card on our anniversary every year. She just, that's something she just took upon herself to do. Amen. The gift of giving is sharing material blessings with others and with the church. King James Version says to give with simplicity, but most modern understandings of that Greek word mean liberality or generosity. It can also mean with a singleness of heart. There are some people that are blessed significantly more than others with the means and opportunity to give to God's cause. They should not consider their material blessings to be a sign of superiority, but a gift of God for the purpose of assisting his kingdom in a special way. Amen. Ruling, the King James calls it, but leading is perhaps our better understanding, speaks of direction, guidance, and influence within the church. Leaders are to exercise their role with diligence, carefulness, and earnestness. God has ordained rulers and leaders in his church, and the church needs various people with leadership and administrative abilities. There are people that we have on our elders board in the church whose abilities in this area, gifts that God has given them, are incredibly valuable to the operation of the church. They have abilities and gifts that I don't even begin to understand. Showing mercy means being merciful and kind to others. It can include such things as visiting the sick, helping the poor, coming alongside those who are struggling, even perhaps when it's self-inflicted because we've all at one time or another self-inflicted our own struggle. And a person who fills this role should always do so cheerfully, not in a mournful, begrudging or patronizing way. Now, the seven different gifts, I think, in that list. If you identify with one of those, it does not excuse you from the other six. So if you go, hey, well, I'm merciful, I'm not going to give. That response generates that I tapped onto something there. But anyway, to some extent, every mature Christian should be able to function in all of the areas that we've just listed. All Christians should be able to be an effective witness, should be willing to serve, to encourage, to give, to show mercy. All should have at least a basic ability to instruct believers in the plan of salvation and to lead new converts in the ways of the Lord. If you don't know how to explain to somebody how to be born again, you need to do something about that. You don't have to be a theologian or have lots of alphabet after your name, but you do need to be able to explain the plan of salvation to people. Amen. But this passage in Romans tells us that even though we understand that Christians have all, need to be in all of those things, each of us as children of God has some area of particular strength or gift that is given by God also with the measure of faith required to perform that. Uh, as an example of how these gifts can operate, Daniel, could you throw that next slide on the wall? I don't know if you're going to be able to read that from back there. Uh, you know, my, my daughter always quivers when I start using PowerPoint. 
But uh, this table is, is from a book that I was looking at about spiritual gifts by a husband and wife named Don and Katie Fortune. And this gives you a little bit of insight into how these different motivational gifts can operate within the kingdom of God. And I'll just read them very quickly if you're not able to read them. The prophet declares the will of God. It's a spiritual need that keeps us centered on spiritual principles. The server renders practical service, which is a practical need, helps to keep the ministry, the work of the ministry moving. The teacher researches, teaches the Bible, which is mental at least to a certain point, keeps us studying and learning. An exhorter or an encourager encourages spiritual and personal progress. It's psychological. It keeps us applying spiritual truths. The giver shares assistance from available resources. It's a material need. It keeps specific needs provided for. The leader gives leadership and direction, which is functional, keeps us organized, increases our vision. And I'm a little bit tall for the bottom ones. The mercy giver provides personal and emotional support, which is emotional, keeps us in right attitude and relationships. Now, I'm not saying that everything in that table is, is hard and fast fact, but it gives us an overview of the way different gifts contribute to the function in the body of Christ. Amen. These gifts mentioned in Romans chapter 12 obviously have spiritual application, but they are also often a part of our personality so that they can be present even before we know the Lord. They may not be recognized or utilized automatically, but they are usually resident within us. And sometimes, this is a really good example actually, sometimes the way that we respond to situations can reveal the gifts that God has given us and what they might be. If I could give you an example, Daniel, if you could throw that next slide up there. In a hypothetical situation, a woman is passing by and hurries across your church parking lot, her arms loaded with papers. She suddenly stumbles and the papers go flying. Hopefully, anybody here would want to help her. If none of us do, then we have some more lessons we have to have. Hopefully, any of us would want to rush over and help her, but the motivation behind why we want to help may be different for each one of us. And if you can read that, the prophet's motivation might be, this is an opportunity to tell her that God loves her and that this is a great church. The server might think, she's obviously in need of practical help. Got to pick up the papers. The teacher might think, well, the Bible teaches that we are to be servants one to another, so that might be their motive. The exhorter thinks, here's a great opportunity to meet someone and encourage her to be involved in a small group or a Bible study. The giver thinks, I can give my time and my effort here to someone in need. The leader says, turning to their spouse, honey, why don't you go get the car while I help this lady so we won't be late for our meeting. Delegate, they see the big picture. And the mercy extender says, oh, I hope she's not embarrassed. I can identify and help. So on the outside, seven different people might do the same thing, rush to help, but the motivation where that comes from is reflected by the kind of people we are, which is connected to the motivational gifts that God gives us. So sometimes one of the ways we can start thinking about how do I identify these things is how we respond to certain situations. Amen. This helps us to understand how we are created. It can also help us to understand why we can struggle when other people don't see the situation as obviously as we do. They're not gifted the same way. Now, there are a whole variety of tests that you can do to complete to help identify what your gifts might be, and they can be helpful tools. And if you're interested in some of that, you can see me and I can try to point you in that direction. Sometimes understanding our own personalities can be very helpful 
as well. Understanding our kind of personality helps us understand how we think and how we respond and how others think and respond. For some people, those gifts are obvious to themselves and to those around them. For others in the church, they're uncovered through the process of being available, being faithful, and being willing to serve. Now just in bringing this lesson to a close, I want to give you some Bible examples of some characters you might know that we can maybe connect with some of these gifts to help you understand them maybe just a little bit more. And you may think of some other examples. This list is by no means exhaustive. When we think of the, the, the gift of prophecy, two of the people that might come to mind are the Apostle Peter and John the Baptist. Bold, straight shooters, possibly a little outspoken, not afraid to challenge wrongdoing, to warn others. They have a strong sense of justice and conviction even with a healthy dose of righteous indignation. You can think about that when you think about the Apostle Peter and the way he was. We think about people that minister or that serve. One of the most obvious ones is Martha from the New Testament. She was hospitable, taking care of everyone and everything. Practical, fussing to make sure everything is okay. And we all know people that are like that and we need people like that. Timothy is perhaps another example of that. Very much a servant to the Apostle Paul, taking care of Paul's needs, running errands for him. If you read Acts chapter 17, when Paul moved on from one place, Timothy stayed behind to help to take care of things. Teaching. A few examples in the Scripture. One that may not spring to mind, obviously, is is Luke. When you read the introductory remarks to both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, it seems that that Luke had a particular desire to make sure there was an accurate account that was given. He wanted to make sure. He said, I've taken it upon myself. I want to make sure the details are correct. He wasn't saying that the others got it wrong. But his, his, his natural persona was, let's do this accurately. He wanted to teach it correctly. We might see that. Give, we could look at Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts. They worked with the Apostle Paul. They seemed to have had a church in their home. And you read the wonderful story of how they took Apollos under themselves and they taught him the way more completely or more accurately. He had faith, he had an experience with God, but they felt a need to get the details right. They were, they were teachers. The next gift of exhortation or encouragement. In the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, it says, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. He, this man was so well known for being an encourager that the disciples gave him an extra name which meant the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. And when you you scratch the surface a little bit on Barnabas, he certainly seems to have been an encourager. The gift of giving. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, was known as a man who gave much alms or gave generously to the people. Lydia, in the book of Acts, was a businesswoman in the city of Thyatira who offered her home, took care of the apostles, possibly having church gatherings in her house with the resources that she had. A couple of Old Testament examples for ruling or leading. Joseph in the book of Genesis, a young man that God positioned to preserve Jacob and his family. Joseph was a young man of great character and integrity, but he obviously demonstrated leadership qualities because anywhere he went, they identified those traits and they put him in charge. Potiphar put him in charge of his house. The prison guards put him in charge of the prison. And then Pharaoh put him in charge of the whole nation, which at that time was effectively the whole world. So he obviously had, you know, 
You didn't have to worry about leaving things with Joseph. He knew what he was doing. He, he could have had integrity and not necessarily been a leader. But he demonstrated leadership qualities that were obviously very easily recognized. Either that or everybody else in Egypt was just lousy and he was the only choice. I don't think that's the case. Mercy. Again, the Old Testament, we think about Ruth. Ruth was compassionate upon her mother-in-law, sacrificing her own needs to care for her. John the Apostle in the New Testament is described as having been very close to Jesus and was given the responsibility of caring for the Lord's mother after he was gone. Now, that's very interesting because Jesus had other siblings and yet John was selected by the Lord to take care of Mary. And when you read the gospel and the epistles of John, there's a very heavy emphasis on love for God demonstrated as love for the brethren. So John, we might say, was a merciful man, even though he and his brother were described as the sons of thunder, but that that just might have been with each other. Who knows? These are just some examples of the way that God makes us. Each of us has at least one of these motivational gifts. Some writers, some commentators suggest that it is likely that you have one that is dominant. If you're aware of the gift that you have from that list this morning, I would encourage you to make sure you're using it for the glory of God. If you're unsure, ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Spend some time reflecting on the things that are important to you as a person, how you respond to various situations, and that may help. You may ask people that are close to you, possibly people that are in spiritual leadership, If somebody comes to you to talk about their giftings, please don't take it upon yourself to tell them what they have. Reflect with them about how they are and how they respond and let the Lord reveal that to them. When you you have direction from the Lord, you want to say, the Lord revealed to me that this is the gift he's given me. You don't want to say, well, the pastor told me this is my gift. If God uses leadership to confirm it, that's great. But we need to know between us and God that this is how he's made us to be. Amen. You know, when we were worshiping the Lord this morning, we were singing that song... He gave me a reason to dance. And a section of that song talks about dancing out of our grave clothes. And uh, while I was over there worshipping the Lord, the Lord just dropped this thought in my mind, which I'm going to close with, and I believe it's for somebody here. Whatever you've done, whatever your story is, whatever your journey is, it doesn't matter how ugly it is. The gifts of God are still there. And people might not see them. People might say, oh, anybody but that person. But they do not dictate the will of God in your life. The Gospel of John is a very, very well-known story. I, I want to say it's about chapter 12. The story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who Jesus deliberately delayed going to visit when he was sick so that he would die. And by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus' friends and family were, if you read between the lines, it almost seems like they were a bit put out. They are a bit angry at Jesus because he took so long to come. And if he had to come when he was sick... He could have done something about it, but it's too late now. It's too late. He's already dead. And so Jesus, you can read it all in your own time, but Jesus said, take me to the place where you've laid him. And they said, he said, roll away the stone. And they were like, but Lord, it's been four days. That cave's not refrigerated. He's going to be a bit smelly by now. But they did what he told them to do. And then he called Lazarus forth and miraculously Lazarus came out of that tomb. Now, how he moved, you can discuss, but he was bound head to toe in grave clothes. So if he did it himself, the best he could manage was probably a hop. But then Jesus said, you loose him. You take the grave clothes off. 
I think there's something there that God wants us to understand that it is not up to us to leave people bound in their grave clothes if God quickens them. If God gives them new life, if God calls them out of death into life and darkness into light, it is not up to us to say it can't happen for them. It's too long. They've been dead too long. They've been in the grave for too long. The Lord's saying, loose them and let them go. Let's stand together this morning. Why don't we just lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment?